Hello again, constant listener. Before tonight's story, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you once again about our sponsor, Magic Mind. I spend a lot of late nights writing, and I have a lot of early mornings to deal with, and a lot of coffee to go with it. But have you ever been two or three cups in, and your heart is beating, and your body is awake, but your brain is just foggy and can't seem to keep up? Or maybe you totally crash and burn around lunchtime and spend the whole afternoon trying to keep your eyes open instead of working. I know I've been there. And Magic Mind is my secret weapon, a beautiful little green elixir. It's a tasty little matcha shot full of vitamins and ingredients to catch your brain up and keep it working at full capacity for a full day, like motor oil greasing the gears to keep an engine running smoothly. It's the closest thing I've ever found to a flow state in a bottle. Low caffeine means no racing heart and no brutal crash, and the other compounds like bacopa, monieri, and L-thionine boost your memory and your mood and help keep you relaxed. It really does feel like magic some days. And the best part is that the benefits accrue and build with daily use. It works for me, and I think it will work for you too, and on top of all that, it just tastes really good. For January only, Magic Mind wants to help you be at your best to crush all your New Year's resolutions. That's why, for the rest of the month, if you subscribe for three months, they're going to give you one month free. Go to magicmind.com slash jangoblin, that's Jan as in January, J-A-N, Goblin as in Market, and use the code GOBLIN20. That's G-O-B-L-I-N-2-0 for 20% off. The code will be valid for 20% off your order forever, but the free month offer will only last through January, so take advantage now and stay focused for the whole year. Thanks, and now, please enjoy the show. Longest night of the year. In my early 20s, I worked maintenance for a funeral home. The owners were fine and the work was fine enough, but one night when I had been there for about three months, I was the last one left in the building after a visitation, cleaning up and locking down. When I passed the reception room and saw someone out of the corner of my eye, all of the chairs were still out and arranged, and they were sitting in the front row near the casket. A tall man, probably middle-aged to judge by the back of his head, graying black hair. For a moment, I couldn't speak. I was so caught off guard that I had to stop myself from screaming. I had watched everyone leave. I had been walking up and down the place, cleaning, whistling, talking to myself. For 30 minutes, I had not even questioned that I was alone. 
Finally, I found enough of a voice to inform the man that I was turning off the lights and closing up for the night. He didn't say anything, didn't even turn around to look at me. A deep cold rushed over my entire body then. Even after only a few months on the job, the faces and funerals had begun to run together in my mind. But I knew that this reception room on this evening had hosted the wake of a man, a middle-aged man, by my estimation. The casket was still open. There was an oil portrait of the deceased on an easel, graying black hair. I turned off the lights so that the mourner would receive the message, but I waited for five minutes and nobody came out of the reception room, so I just left. Sometimes I still think about that job that night. If I had looked inside the casket, I would have seen the same man that was sitting in that chair. I am absolutely sure of it. I don't know what would have happened after that. That's the part that scares me. Nowadays I work security for the Dunwoody Mall. A dying mall in a dying town is what my boss likes to say. I like to point out to kids whose parents ask me for directions that the mall is shaped like a dollar sign if you look at it from above. People usually get a kick out of that. Sometimes their parents have to explain to the kid what a dollar sign is. But my boss isn't entirely wrong either. This has been the slowest December since I started working here. J.C. Penney left in the spring, and then 15 of the smaller stores packed up and left in their wake. Which isn't all bad. With rent lower, a few local people have moved in and set up some more unique storefronts. Not that I work much while folks are in the mall these days, which is fine with me. I've been a night person as long as I can remember, and the quiet lets me focus on other things. There's still a bit of my adolescent self in me that looks at a clock reading 2.30 a.m. and feels a little thrill at the idea that I may well be the only living soul awake for miles. We've got a nice little system worked out. My boss's wife works nights as a bartender, so he relieves me in the mornings when the mall opens and works the first shift. He says he doesn't really care if I sleep on the job as long as he doesn't see it. A lot of times, some of the old folks are waiting for him at the door, and he comes in grumbling under his breath, like they're the reason he has to be here. They like to walk laps in little groups and never buy much. Then my boss can leave in time to pick up his kid from school, and Gerald, a senior at Dunwoody High himself, shows up to work the second shift until close. My boss talks about his family a lot. I realized recently that he has never asked me about my personal life. Not to say that he is an inconsiderate person. I just don't think that the idea of it ever occurred to him. Not like I have much family to speak of anyhow, aside from my mother, who still lives over in Brunswick. Tomorrow morning, assuming 
they can get the roads cleared by then, I will leave for her house for Christmas. And I'm sure I'm being irrational. And perhaps with some time and some more distance, I will be able to see all of this much more rationally. But as I sit here recording this, trying and failing to slow the rapid beating of my heart, I do not ever want to come back. In fact, if the roads were in better shape, I would leave now. I think my boss would understand if I explained. And if he fired me anyways, well, there are worse fates than being fired. I live in an old Dutch colonial farmhouse at the end of a dead-end street. There is no farm anymore, just me and my roommate Donovan, though I haven't seen him in weeks. He hardly ever leaves his room. I've been slowly expanding my recording operation, waiting for the day his door finally opens and he comes storming out demanding that I quit it with the noise. But it hasn't happened yet. It started with one of my Fender amps on the landing, then I started miking the stairs in the downstairs hallway, which has great acoustics, and recording some bass parts, and last week I moved the drum kit down into the living room. Yesterday, I left an hour early for work and walked instead of driving so that I could look at people's Christmas lights and listen to some demos I'd recently recorded. I set off down the long driveway, which was really more like a short trail through some woods. The sky was lilac and the moon was squatting big and yellow on the horizon and it was starting to snow. The first snow of the year. It comes later every year. They say, don't be surprised if we don't get any next year at all. There was a big industrial cloud in the distance. Back in the spring, the whole town shook one night when a medical supply cleaning facility blew up. Most people didn't even know that's what they were doing over there, and afterward the government was real dodgy about the details of the investigation. Then they went and reopened the place last week, and they still haven't told us what exactly is in all that stuff they're pumping into the air. A bunch of houses along the walk have yard signs demanding answers and accountability from the city council, who haven't said a word since the whole thing started. My boss says they probably never will. What can you do? I like all kinds of decorations. I pass a stately, symmetrical colonial with a wreath on the door and candles placed tastefully in each window, tied up a bottom with red bows. I pass front lawns packed with sculptures and figures and electronic reindeer, color overloads, trees twinkling in front windows drooping beneath the weight of so much shimmering tinsel. It was full dark by the time I reached the main road and I could see my breath, but I didn't feel cold. The world was very quiet, save for the occasional crunching of car tires on fresh snow several streets over. I was so caught up in the lights that I didn't notice the big German shepherd charging at me until he was at the fence at the corner of his yard, only a couple feet from me, rattling the chain link and barking. It took three blocks for my heart to slow down after that. It was about that time that I remembered about the body they'd found just about a month ago in Wayne Miller's field along 45. It was a woman from the city. They initially reported that she'd been drunk walking home from the bar and gotten turned around and died of hypothermia, 
but people driving by had seen that she didn't even have shoes on, and someone said that she looked like she'd been all slashed up. The official police narrative now goes that she was dumped there by her killer as they fled from the state line. And now that I think about it, it would have been just about a month earlier that Dalton Kreese was found cold in a pool of his own blood behind the counter at the gas station where he worked. The police had been sparing with the details of that one, but rumors got around. Slashed to hell is the phrase I heard. These kinds of things don't really happen here. And actually, maybe it was a month or so before Dalton Crease, but late summer there was a whole rash of cattle mutilations reported by a few of the local farmers. That one is perhaps a bit harder to connect to the murders, admittedly. Weird, nonetheless. There's a trailer at the edge of the mall parking lot left over from when the contractors were renovating all the skylights. According to my boss, they finished the work ten years ago, and when they were hauling away all the other equipment, the guy who owned the mall paid the crew 500 bucks for the trailer, and he's been fighting City Hall for permission to rent it out as a room ever since. When the parking lot is empty, the mall looks like a castle at the center of a massive concrete lake. I felt very exposed crossing it, leaving my tracks in the thin powder, a gentle arc ending at the row of doors, glowing like a hearth. Exposed to what? Who knows? There were maybe a half dozen cars scattered around, gathering snow. I used my key to let myself inside. Fred the janitor was buffing the floors. A few last shoppers were straggling toward the exits. The stores were cleaning up and rolling shut their security gates. Some were already dark. I climbed the auxiliary stairs to the catwalk, out to the security cabin. Gerald was packing up to leave when I opened the door. He's a good kid. I settled in and unpacked my bag. A thermos of coffee, some snacks headphones for music or sometimes one of the overnight radio shows. I'm trying to read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance right now. My mom said that my dad didn't read much, but it was one of his favorite books. There's a little TV on the corner of the big desk with an antenna and a VCR and a stack of tapes beside it. Rambo, First Blood 2, SummerSlam, 1995. Some workout tapes, a Danny Trejo movie. There's an old fan in the opposite corner and a monitor on the floor beneath. Back when I'd first started, there were camera feeds from each of the entrances, but one by one, each of them had stopped working and nobody had ever taken the time or money to replace them. I grabbed a Coke out of the mini fridge and said goodbye to Gerald and stood looking out the main observation window while I took the first few sips. The cabin sits perched over the main thoroughfare the vertical line through the S. And when all of the lights are on and there isn't a giant Christmas tree, you can see from one end to the other. But with only the security lights on, you can't see much. I waved at Fred as he finished up and left for the night. There were life-size nutcrackers glowing up and down the walkway at intervals between the benches and potted palms. Santa's throne sat empty at the foot of the tree surrounded by piles of cotton snow. 
I had tried to audition to do day shifts as Santa, but my boss told me the mall contracted their Santas out to another company. And when I finally got a hold of the company, they told me that they only hire Santas who are actually old. At 10 o'clock, an hour after close, the music stops for the night. It wasn't long after that that I heard one of the doors open on the north side of the mall. I could have sworn that I checked all the doors after Fred left. He was the last one in the building besides me. But maybe... I don't know. Sometimes nights can start to run together. The routine. You focus a little too hard on something you took for granted and before you know it, it slips out of your hands and you can never get it back. It occurred to me in that moment that in the several years I've been working here, I've never been called upon to do anything brave. Just show up, lock the doors, and be present. Do my rounds. And now there's some stranger inside after hours, and I can barely even find my voice to announce myself. I stepped out onto the balcony and finally just managed to say, Hello? Not stop. Not security. The footsteps stopped. Then a woman's voice from the dark said, Hello? It was familiar. I said, this is security. Who's there? She said, oh, and kind of chuckled and said, it's me. When I didn't say anything for a couple of seconds, she said, Debbie. I turned on my flashlight and found her with the beam. She shielded her eyes with one hand, her jacket draped over her other arm. It was the lady from Plant Street. I told her sorry and turned off my light, and she kind of chuckled again and said something about late-night inventory, and then I said that she almost gave me a heart attack. That made her chuckle too, and she said, Oh, I'm sorry, dear. She was probably in her late 40s, early 50s, hair more gray than not. I heard her walk beneath the cabin on her way, and then, and I don't know what came over me, but I said, can't be too careful with that slasher going around. Her footsteps stopped again. They said he went up on into Wisconsin. What do they know, I said. Lieutenant Harris wouldn't know his ass from a hole in the ground. I think it came out more mean than funny, and Debbie didn't laugh. Why, she said, do you know something? Do you think he's... Still around? I said, What makes you so sure it's a he? And she said, It's always a he. I said, There's rumblings in the law enforcement community, but only thing anyone knows for sure, whoever it is, they haven't caught them yet. She said, They're sure it's the same one who did both? And I shrugged and told her that it was my personal assessment of the situation. Both on full moons, she said. I told her that I had noticed that as well. Really does drive people a little nuts, doesn't it? She said. I mentioned that it was full again tonight. Not quite, she said. And she sounded very sure when she said it. Tomorrow, though. December 21st, longest night of the year. I asked if she had any plans and think that it came across more sincere than joking. She cleared her throat and said, 
nothing so definite. And then she said, you aren't going to be here tomorrow, are you? I told her that I wasn't scheduled and that I needed the night off to pack so that I could get ready for an early start on the drive the following morning. I think she must have nodded, though I could barely make out where she was in the dark, and she said, Just as well. Wouldn't want to be here. I said, What? Why? She said, Well, that's when the slasher comes out, isn't it? Whoever they are. I guess we both better watch our backs, I said, wherever we are. I know where I'll be, she said, at home, with every last door and window locked, from sunset to sunrise. Well, I said, good night. She coughed a little and then said, Merry Christmas. I told her Merry Christmas and heard her go on her way. A few minutes later, I descended the stairs and made my first round. Sure enough, there was a car parked near the north entrance, almost entirely clean of snow. My tracks from earlier in the evening were nearly gone, and hers had already begun to fill in and lose their form. I really didn't like all the nutcrackers. More than once, the reflection of one in the store window caused me to turn around so fast I just about broke my neck. Maybe I was on edge from the conversation earlier. I didn't like knowing there was anyone else in the store, even if it was only Debbie. I went back and tried to read, but couldn't focus. It was starting to creep toward midnight, and I hadn't heard her leave, so I turned off the lights in the cabin and looked out the window at the mall below. The glass was tinted, but when all the other lights were off, you could see people moving around inside. The low hum of the furnaces working on and off somewhere in the bowels of the building only served to deepen the silence. The sunroofs were all covered in snow and glowing amber. I went for my midnight round and stepped outside to smoke a cigarette. My boss used to let us smoke inside the cabin during off hours until his kid was born and his wife started complaining that it smelled like an ashtray whenever she brought the baby up to see him. It was still snowing, slowly like falling powdered sugar. It was as if all our tracks were never there. Even the interstate a couple miles to the east, one of those sounds so constant you just forget it's there, was noticeably silent. I got a Mountain Dew from the vending machine. There's a space heater in the cabin that keeps it overly warm, so I just held the cold can in my hand for a minute and felt the wind on my face, felt my cheeks tingling. There were three or four inches of snow on Debbie's hatchback by then. Back inside, I let an old wrestling tape play and didn't stop myself from falling asleep. Something about that aggressively hot air on your cold, clenched-up face. I keep alarms set for a half hour and 15 minutes before my boss arrives in the morning, so as long as the doors are locked, there is nothing to worry about. But when I awoke, it was still dark and after maybe 10 or 15 seconds of pure confusion, I realized what was strange about the whole situation. My alarm wasn't going off. I checked, and it was only just after 2 in the morning. The whole mall was still dead still. The knock at the door nearly tipped me backwards out of my seat. Suddenly, I remembered hearing it before at the edge of my dream, as if that piece of the dream reality had been dragged into this world. Debbie spoke from the other side of the door.
Hello? I'm sorry to bother you. I wiped the drool from my mouth and straightened myself out on my way to open the door for her. It was weird. I realized as I studied out with two feet on the ground back in the real world that she would come all the way up those stairs just to talk to me. What's up? I asked her. Who is going to be here tomorrow night, if I can ask? I checked the calendar on the desk and told her it was Carson. I don't believe I've ever met him, she said. I told her I hadn't either. He only worked now and then, and we had never crossed shifts. Is he, um, she started to say, and then bit her lip and said, never mind. Good night. It was all so strange. I was still half asleep and didn't remember any of it until several hours after I woke up this morning well after my boss had already asked me to cover the shift tonight, and I agreed. On my way out the door in the morning, I found an orange prescription bottle beneath the cabin, and my mind immediately clocked it as the place where Debbie had been standing while we talked. And sure enough, her name was on the label. I didn't recognize the name of whatever drugs were inside, but they seemed important. I know my mom has a few pills that she has to take every day, and it was easy enough to look up Debbie's address, so on my way home I stopped by her house. But when I got there, her driveway was unshoveled, and there was no sign of her car. I knocked on the door and waited, and nobody answered. All of the curtains were shut except for a window on the back side of the house. I looked inside. The place looked tidy, overly orderly even. There had been a handful of customers' cars in the parking lot by the time I left, and I never even thought to check for Debbie's. I went home and back to sleep for a few hours, and when I woke up, I wanted to record, but started to pack for my trip instead. I figured I might have enough time to do both, but soon it was time to leave for work again, and I hadn't even entirely finished with the packing. I decided that I'd enjoyed the Christmas lights so much the night before that I'd walk again. The city plows hadn't reached most of the side streets yet, and even the main roads were covered in black ice. Many of the holiday lights were now buried in snow and cast ghostly halos on the white surface, and every now and then I would hear some car sloshing along a couple of roads over, but otherwise the world was very quiet, and except for my breath, very still. I passed close to the trailer on my way through the parking lot, and for some unidentifiable reason, it preoccupied my mind, and the closer I came to it, and the longer I stared at it, I had this really sour feeling in my stomach. I had never before noticed that the door was seemingly held shut by a couple pieces of duct tape. The mountains of snow the plows had spent the day creating nearly reached the streetlights. Sure enough, Debbie's car was still there, and still topped by a layer of snow nearly a foot tall. Her parking space was a neat little rectangle island of unplowed powder. I waved to Fred as he was finishing salting the sidewalk, and he was the only living soul I saw before I locked up for the night. I dropped my stuff off in the cabin and went by Plant Street. It was dark. The gate was pulled shut. There were a few pale grow lights along the perimeter that were mostly lost in the thickets of foliage and cast outsized shadows all over the place. 
Each of the walls had three shelves built in, running the length, covered end to end in ferns and succulents. Her office was straight across on the back side of the store, blocked from my view by the big plant-filled, industrial-looking shelf in the middle of the floor. But it didn't look like her office light was on. So I gave up and went back to the cabin. I don't know. Maybe a friend picked her up, or she took a cab, or... Past a certain point of reasonable diligence, what business was it of mine to keep prying? If the pills were that important, she'd probably retrace her steps at some point. But I did not like the feeling I could not shake, that I was not unequivocally, certifiably alone. I sat in my cabin for half an hour before it became too much to bear. I couldn't focus to read, and I didn't dare turn on the television and risk not hearing something out there in the mall. I realized I was hardly breathing. I did not want to risk revealing my presence to anyone else who might be out there. It was why I didn't like camping, or more so, sleeping in tents, specifically. And I was suddenly very much overcome with the squirmy feeling of being in a tent at night in the middle of some vast wilderness, with my lantern announcing me to whatever predators might be lurking out there in the darkness. Something about that always gave me the creeps. But I couldn't see out, but everything out there knew I was inside and relying on all involved parties to uphold this very tenuous fiction that a little skim of fabric constitutes a significant shelter and not just like the wrapper to a camper sandwich. I went for my first round early just to get out of the cabin. The first and really only time I went camping, I was 10 years old with my friend Dylan. Dylan was not really two years older than me, but had just turned 12 at the time, and so for a month and a half until my own birthday would seem to be two years older than me. That year difference is an eternity to a nine-year-old, though, and I'd always thought of him as wiser and somehow more worldly than my friends who were in the same grade as myself, but by the end of that camping trip, I was clinging to him like the pool noodle someone threw me when I was too stubborn to admit I couldn't swim and nearly drowned in the YMCA pool right in front of my friends and my mom right in the bleachers. We had ridden our bikes out of town and deep along the logging roads and trails into the woods. This was when we lived in Oregon. We moved when I was 12 myself and I never saw Dylan again. Dylan was confident that he knew where he was going and seemed like he had come this way before, so I trusted him, even though all the roads started to look the same to me as soon as we hit the tall trees. The redwoods were like aliens. They made a person look like an ant. We found his fishing spot and spent the morning fishing, and then he started a fire and grilled up what he'd caught, and I set up camp, and in the afternoon we set out on our squirrel hunt, he with his BB gun and me with a bow and arrow he'd made in scouts. His looked enough like a real gun that I'd get excited when he'd let me carry it or shoot at a soda can. We bagged a couple, and I hated it. All my enthusiasm drained the second I saw that first squirrel twitch and fall out of the tree and writhe around in the dirt and dead leaves. I didn't have the heart for it. In fact, it made me feel sick, but I couldn't tell Dylan that. 
Back at the camp, it was near dark, and he was preparing the squirrels for the fire when I went into the woods a bit to pee, and when I came back, there was someone else there in the campsite, an adult. He wasn't too old, maybe 30. He had a beard, and he was wearing a t-shirt and jeans and a baseball cap, and Dylan was still sitting where he had been, with the squirrel in his lap, and the man kept smiling at him as he was talking, and when he saw me, he waved and kept talking. Dylan didn't seem to be talking very much himself. In fact, he would hardly look at the guy. I went over to them, and the guy was saying something about foxes and the strange sounds they make at night. It can get a little spooky sleeping out here if you've never done it before, he said. I knew for a fact that Dylan had camped out plenty of times before and that it would bother him to not say something and correct the man. And so I started paying more attention to him when he did not. Something was wrong. He did not like this guy being here. The man asked me what my name was and I hesitated to answer. And then, before I could... I heard Dylan rack around in his BB gun, now in his lap. Apparently the man had asked if we were all alone out here, and if anyone knew where we were, and Dylan did not care for it. He told the man to mind his own business and get lost. I'd never heard a kid talk to an adult that way. The man kind of smirked at him, and then put his hands in the air sarcastically. Didn't your mother ever teach you any manners, he said. Dylan told him that we didn't want anything to do with him and that our parents were just out getting dinner and would be back within the hour. It took the man so long to leave after that that I was scared for a moment he wouldn't. But then he said, no need to be hostile, and backed away. We watched him go, and he whistled as he went, and then very soon after the woods were dark. We ate the squirrels in silence, just our forks scraping on the cast iron. I was now both too distracted to worry about how queasy the meal made me feel, and too nervous to be very hungry. I had brought my telescope and we were hoping to look for some planets, but clouds moved in just after sunset and the sky was a blank gray all night. So we sat there playing cards and listening, and not saying much till we decided to turn in for the night. We hadn't been in bed more than a couple of minutes when Dylan whispered, We gotta go. And I was half asleep and for a second I was very confused until I heard it. My brain had found the noise so unremarkable that it had blocked it out, but in the cricket and bullfrog quiet of the middle of the forest, in the middle of the night, it struck me like a nail through my shoe sole. The sound of a car engine and nearby. I followed Dylan, and we crawled silently out of the tent and closed the flap behind us and crept over a tall earthen mound a few yards from the campsite where we huddled behind a stand of pine tree saplings. Soon we heard footsteps coming toward our campsite. There was just enough light to tell that it was the man from earlier. He approached our tent, and as he drew near it, he began walking on his tiptoes, with his hands held in front of him in an exaggerated, sneaking motion, and then he crouched down beside it. It took me a minute or two to realize what he was doing, tilting his head near the tent wall like he was. He was whispering to us. Then, slowly, he unzipped the flap 
and realized we weren't inside. Our bikes were on the other side of the campsite, near where we'd heard his car. He sat outside the tent for a very long time, for so long it felt like he would never leave, like the night would never end, for hours. Several times I nearly fell asleep, but whenever I looked over at Dylan, his eyes were locked on the man. I never saw him blink. At some point, a gray haziness began to break the darkness, and the man was nowhere to be seen. We waited until the sun had risen and snuck around to see our bikes. It was a foggy morning, and we hadn't heard the man leave, and didn't even know what direction he might be in if he were still nearby. The bikes were where we had left them, and there was no sign of the man, so we walked them to the nearest road and then rode home without talking. I finished my round a little before 10.30 and found nothing out of the ordinary, and I mostly just felt like I should have been more relieved than I was, because the nagging feeling wasn't gone, if anything it was worse than ever, and I was out of ideas. But then I heard something that made my blood go cold right as I was passing a utility hallway. The utility hallways are, frankly, for my money, the worst places in the entire mall. Long, incredibly long, cave-like tunnels where they keep the bathrooms and janitor closets and the like. It's dark in the daytime. At night, it looks like the pit of hell. And I hear this awful barking, shouting noise come echoing down from somewhere deep in the belly of the place. It froze me. I hear it again and then again, and it suddenly strikes me as the sound of a violently ill person puking, or at least dry heaving, into a ceramic toilet with some hideous acoustic defect that makes them sound scarcely human, and from then I could hear it as nothing else. My heart was still beating hard enough to make the buttons of my shirt feel tight as I approached the bathroom. The nearer I came to it, the more defined the sound became, and the more sure of myself I was. And yet, with each new bark louder than the last, it seemed almost unimaginable that this noise was emanating from a human body. They stopped. Hello? I said. It's security. Is everything all right in there? They didn't respond, but they did puke again, and then I could hear a moaning that sounded very much human, like a woman almost familiar, even. I asked if they needed medical assistance. I think that they said no, but it was hard to be sure. I asked if they wanted me to turn on the lights. The motion sensor ones can be tricky. They said nothing. Then, it could have been a minute later, it could have been five, they shouted something that sounded more like go, then no, and I did. My adrenaline took me halfway back up the hall before I even knew why I was moving. I retreated all the way back to the cabin to regain my bearings. I was nearly certain that it had been Debbie, but how could a person with so slight a frame produce what I had heard? It was unfathomable. I went outside to smoke a cigarette and hear traffic and feel cold, fresh air on my face. 
The snow had moved on, and a deep freeze had settled in, the kind of cold that tightens you up right down to the bone. There was not a cloud in the sky, and the stars seemed brighter and sharper than I had ever seen them. The moon was small and white, like an ancient coin, high overhead. It could not have been much colder there than it was right here tonight, and the boulder stacks of snow and the black icy pavement could very well have passed for a lunar landscape. Except, strange thing I noticed, and only after a few minutes of standing there, which bothered me a little, was that someone had built a snowman a few rows out, and not near any streetlight, but sort of half-hidden, at least from where I was standing, behind one of those mountains of snow blocks. I had to stare at it for half a minute before I could really be sure that's what I was seeing. The part that bothered me the most was that it was looking at me, rolled up by some kids while their mother was loading the trunk, maybe, or a joke pulled by someone who never even needed to see the payoff of his work. At least, I hoped they weren't there to see it. Whatever that meant, I was scaring myself. Another cigarette steadied my nerves, and I headed back to Plant Street with the woman's pills. I took a class last year, with my own money, on my own day off, to become taser certified, and my boss refuses to allow me to carry on the job. When I arrived, I could see light coming from beneath her office door. I called out to her. Debbie, you in there? It's me from security. Nobody answered for a long time, but then her door opened. I saw her frame block the light from her office, from the grow lights. And then it was like I blinked and she was standing across from me. Something about all those strange shadows. Hello, officer, she said. And normally I would have corrected her. As my boss drills into us, we are legally not allowed to go by officer or in any way imply that we are law enforcement. But as she drifted into the light, I saw that she was wearing a fur coat and nothing, as far as I could tell, underneath. And I realized as soon as I had opened my mouth to speak, that I could never in a million years look this woman in the eye and ask if that had been her I spoke to in the bathroom. What had I been thinking? So instead, I managed to mention that I had seen her car on my way into the building. You weren't supposed to be here tonight, she said. I had completely forgotten that until that exact moment. Neither were you, I said. There was something different about her, her voice, the way she was carrying herself. I forgot some papers here, she said unconvincingly, like she was daring me to believe her. I said, I guess that makes us both liars. The way she was looking at me was far too intense and I could barely meet her eyes. She wasn't listening to a word I was saying. She looked amused that I was talking at all. Are you following me? She said. 
She was smiling. No, ma'am, I said. It's my job to know who is inside of the perimeter after close. She said, I think it's just you and me. I asked if she was doing more inventory. She said, no. And that was it. I said, all right. I wanted to leave. Full moon, she said. Longest night of the year. Coldest, too, I said. Got my wolf skin on, she said. I just said, oh. She was standing beneath her store's red neon sign now and running her fingers down the metal security cage. I wasn't kidding, you know, she said. The moon really does make you a little wacky. You think for thousands of years people have just been making that up? I really wanted to leave. The sun is light itself, pure energy. It's transcendent. The sun is God, she said. There are footprints on the moon. The moon is just a rock, just this strange deformed object in the sky taunting us. Just another place to stand. What is it doing up there? I don't know, I said. Then, what are we doing down here? She said. I told her that I should be going, and she didn't say anything. And instead of just leaving, I asked, How late do you think you'll be sticking around tonight? She grinned and said, Oh, I don't know. Probably till dawn. But if I'm not here, don't come looking for me. Back in the cabin, I was just as restless as before, maybe more so. I went outside for another smoke and noticed a second snowman out in the parking lot, tucked behind another snow pile. Was it new? Or had I just missed it last time? I felt like I was standing in an alligator's open mouth, just waiting for the jaws to snap shut. The whole mall seemed haunted and foreboding, and it was not even midnight. When I returned to Plant Street, I did not see Debbie. I was right up against the cage when I noticed her lying on the ground just a few feet in front of me, staring expressionless at the ceiling. Her arms were at her sides, and she looked unwell, sweaty, pale, clammy. She didn't acknowledge me, even after I said hello. In the strange shadows, I thought she might have been unconscious until I heard her moan. Her voice was hoarse and scratchy when she did. The enlightenment was a mistake, she said. Not necessarily to me or anyone in particular. The sun may seem like perfection, but you and I know that's not true. 
it's just another thing. It's not even a sun at all. It's just a star. Just another star. No God at all. What's the difference? I asked. God, the sun, is benevolent. There are a billion stars. A star is carnivorous, all-devouring. Even heaven can't survive God's absence. I said, nothing is forever, I guess. She turned her head to look at me for the first time. Then what is? The sun winks out someday and leaves, what? A black hole? Just the disappearance of everything? Just, we don't know, sorry? We killed God and thought we could replace him. But it's still just us, each of us, trapped in our own little locked box. Don't worry though, that won't happen for a long time. Except, and then she stopped talking for so long that for a second I thought she forgot that she'd ever begun. Except, now they say that the Arctic ice is going to melt and possibly when it becomes too hot, the methane that is trapped there will fire into the sky and reverse the carbon cycle. Do you know what that means? I said that I did not. It means, she said, that the trees, the ones who raised us, who sheltered and shaded us when we were barely human, who fed us even before we were human, the nurturing womb of the living planet itself, would cease to consume carbon dioxide and produce oxygen and would like a switch had been flipped, begin doing the opposite. Like a planetary immune system, the whole thing would just reject us, leave us to the father, the cannibalistic star who eats its own. Don't worry though, she said. That won't happen for, oh, Two years, according to some scientists. She sat up and looked very sick. The sweat was pouring from her face and running off of her, pooling on the tile floor. Do you ever think about how you could be dying right now? Aren't we all, I said, all the time. She glared at me. You're being glib. I'm being serious. Everyone who says that imagines themselves dying at 95 in a fluffy bed, holding their grandkids' hands and drifting away. I mean, you could be dead already, and you don't even know it. Something could already be inside you. Prions. Rabies. Rabies could take 15 years to kill you, and you might never even know you were bitten. Coating each of your nerves, silently, 
slowly working its way up till it can coat your brain. Next thing you know, you're allergic to water and terrified of your own family. Oh! She jerked violently and her head thrashed to one side and stayed there. It hit the floor hard and made me shudder. Every muscle in her body was tensed at the same time, her veins like cords against her skin. I asked if she was alright. It took her a second to answer. You knew what this was, she said. You're not dumb. You're just bored. A moment later, she skittered like a wounded animal across the floor and into the shelf, knocking a potted plant to the ground. Then she scrambled around and back into the darkness of her office. There, she moaned again, louder this time, like she was in a lot of pain. But there was also... Rage. Then she grunted and started panting, almost like she was in labor. Then a scream that made my legs want to run out of the mall and all the way back to my house. From the bottom of her soul. Followed by a loud crash, like she'd flipped over her desk. Glass shattering. With each second that passed, her howling seemed somehow less... Human. It gave me chills down to my marrow. Life and the world around me suddenly seemed very, very real, very immediate, and very tenuous. Something banged against the wall and she let out her loudest roar yet, agony and ecstasy. It sounded half animal, not like anything a human body would be capable of producing. A lamp fell, and a shadow moved across the doorway, and then something exited the office. A dark shape skulked across the store on all fours, around the shelf, toward me, until I could see. It was Debbie. Still. Just Debbie. As I had always known her crawling along the floor with a wild look in her eye, her hair a little unkempt, but there was nothing else different about her whatsoever that I could detect. Without worrying, she threw herself at the cage, which separated us. The metal buckled and deformed where she hit it. She snarled and snapped at me. There was drool hanging from her chin. Were her teeth a little longer? A little sharper? Surely not. When had I ever paid any attention to her teeth before? She barked at me, and I jumped from the sheer percussive impact of the sound, and then she darted back into her office. I couldn't imagine her being so spry on two legs. There was another commotion, a clattering of pipes. A ceiling tile fell to the floor and broke, and then all was quiet. I stood there a minute longer, but heard nothing else and fell back to the cabin. Already by the time I had shut and locked the door behind me, the whole thing felt like a dream. Once my breath was under control, I listened for any indication of where she might be or what she might be doing. But the mall was silent. The rows of glowing nutcracker figures seemed suddenly very menacing, as did the cotton ball snowdrifts and piles of pretend presents. 
even the massive two-story tree, which I learned this year is no tree at all. No tree at all. But in fact, just a wire frame covered in pine mows could have been hiding something. It's kind of strange in hindsight. Until only a few minutes ago, the word wolf never even entered my mind. As I've been recalling all of this, it came to me. Werewolf. Lycanthropy. The quiet was eating away at me, so eventually, sometime around midnight, I worked up the courage to leave the cabin and hurried outside for another smoke break. It was so cold that it made my teeth shake, but it beat being inside. I was so worried about not standing with my back to the door that I didn't notice the footprints in the snow until I was readying to go back inside. Smaller than my own, and different shoes. There was only a thin layer on which they could imprint on the sidewalk, and once they hit the plowed and salted black asphalt, they disappeared. But in tracing them from the door to the curb, it was hard not to conclude that they were aimed in the direction of the trailer. Without thinking, I just started walking, started following them. The trailer was 200 yards or more from the building, and so realistically she could have gone in any direction. She could have been anywhere. But midway across the parking lot, almost by accident, I saw it move, just slightly, for a split second, shifting a bit on its platform. If it were any other day, I would have assumed I'd imagined it. If my eyes were looking anywhere else at that exact moment, I'd have missed it, or only caught enough in my periphery to write it off as a bit of imagination or stray hair. But the cold and the fear had sharpened my mind to attack point, and what I saw couldn't have been any clearer. And, for some reason, I kept walking toward it. By the time I reached the trailer, I had half convinced myself that I didn't see what I saw. I looked out at the rural road that led to the mall, the wind whipping gusts of snow across it from one empty field to another. I might freeze if I tried to walk home. The snow that was clinging to the aluminum siding had been knocked off the trailer door and the duct tape was flapping around in the wind. I felt my chest tighten. There was an almost metallic odor in the air on my tongue. I held my breath. Beside the door was a black window, only half covered in snow. I have no idea if I was being watched. My mind was too far off the rails at that point to trust any errant feeling or paranoia. I tried to look inside and realized only on getting uncomfortably close to the glass that there was a curtain drawn on the other side. There was something happening in there. Behind that curtain and piece of tinted glass, only a thin sheet of aluminum separated me from whatever it was, whoever was in there doing it. I had a professor once who told our class a story about a friend of his who came home late one night to her sorority house at Florida State and standing alone in the dark foyer 
was suddenly so overwhelmed by an inexplicable dread that she left and spent the night elsewhere. Turns out, several of her sisters were already dead in their beds at the hour she returned to the house. Likely, their killer may have still been in the house as well. One Ted Bundy. I was overcome by a revulsion more potent than anything my body had ever produced. No happiness could match it in scope. No sorrow or grief or anger I'd ever experienced could compare in intensity to the sheer visceral power of the disgust I felt in that moment, the utter bottomless despair, a hopelessness which suddenly engulfed my entire past, present, and future. I've always thought and marveled at the notion that a small but vital part of our brains still lives in prehistory, still operates as though we sleep in trees and caves at night, surrounded by predators. And it doesn't call often, but when it does, it has a red phone direct line to our higher functions some code word activation phrase that our body recognizes immediately, even if our thinking brains never do. Something was happening in that trailer, a couple of feet from where I was standing, in the dark, in whatever dull street lamp glow could sneak past the curtains. People, someone, something, moving in silence, pacing the length, breathing, working, possibly, maybe even probably, aware of my presence. I took a step back, then another. The whole trailer seemed to be emanating evil and sadness. I never knew before tonight that evil was something you could feel in your stomach. If I didn't leave right then, I was going to be sick. This mall makes a lot of little odds and ends noises when you really start to pay attention to the quiet. It's coming up on three o'clock now. The cabin lights are off the longest night of the year. I am convinced that if I make it to sunrise, I will live a long and happy life full of love and warmth. But I am very far from convinced that I will see the sunrise and even farther from it. I wonder what my mother will think when I don't show up for Christmas. God, I wish I had my taser.
Thus concludes our tale for the evening. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and before we go, remind you one more time about the exciting New Year's promotion from my friends at Magic Mind. Through the end of the month, if you subscribe for three months of shots, they'll give you one month totally free. That's happening at magicmind.com slash jangoblin. That's magicmind.com slash jan as in January, goblin, G-O-B-L-I-N. Remember, this offer is only good through the end of January, so you'll have to act fast. Use the code GOBLIN20 for an extra 20% off your order anytime. Feel better, remember more, cut down on the coffee, and keep your mind flowing and working at tip-top shape for all of 2024. There is nothing else I've tried quite like it, and it has become a staple of my morning routine. Tastes good, good for you, what more can you ask for? And all at a great discount for the rest of the month. One more time, that code is goblin20 at magicminds.com slash jan, J-A-N, goblin. Try it today. It works for me, and I think it will work for you too. Thanks.